Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And the title of my message today is The Feeling in the Air. The Feeling in the Air. Because at Christmas, it feels like Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? Like you go into places, you go into stores, and everyone's sort of in the Christmas spirit. And uh, I remember like the, the day after Thanksgiving, you know, just walking into any store, right? And suddenly Christmas music is blaring and uh, everybody's in the mood and there's holiday specials, you know, and you're like, holiday specials already? Um, but we're already moving in that direction. And uh, there's just something in the air that, that tells you that it's Christmas, whether it's the music, whether it's the way people are interacting and reacting to things. But it doesn't impact everybody the same way. In fact, uh, when I was at the grocery store right after Thanksgiving, I uh, was there waiting in line like everybody else, and somebody uh, went up and cut the line, which obviously we all know is how you go straight to hell. And so some guy <laughs> went and cut the line. And I'm telling you, like, it was like the sort of thing where there's like, you know, it's the day after Thanksgiving, and there's like 30,000 people there, and there's like two cashiers, right? And, uh, and they're just, they, they look like they're struggling. And, and so uh, we're all waiting, and this guy cuts like, like 30 people and gets in line, and and it's kind of like, mm, you know, we're all not like that excited about it. Uh, but there was one lady who was just not having it. And um, she like leans out of the line and uh, then she leans out some more and she's just looking and like she looked frazzled. She looked like the type of person where it's like, don't cross this lady, maybe ever, but especially today, she did not look like she should be trifled with, you know what I mean? And she steps out of the line and she like, it's all, everyone's kind of murmuring, like, okay, I believe that. And she's the one who says something. How many of you are that person? You're the person that's like, I'll say something, right? This is this lady. And she was like, hey! And like, everything gets all quiet, you know? And we're just like, oh, what is gonna happen? And people are starting to get out their phones so they can like stealthily record this in case <laughs> it goes viral. And um, she goes, what are you doing? And he's just like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. Like, he's the only one who has things to do. And, <laughs> And what, like, I love the, the excuse, like, we're all going to be like, oh, yeah, he's got to get, sorry, he's got to get out of here, so he should, we should probably just let him. And she was like, I don't think so. She was like, you are not allowed to do that. And then she says this, it's Christmas. <laughs> Which made me laugh. And then I was the only one laughing. And then it looked like I didn't support her. And I'm like, hey, I got your back. You know, I'm not trying to mess with you either. And it was just, hey, not Christmas. It wasn't, it's not technically Christmas. It was the day after Thanksgiving, right? That's like you're barely like sneaking into the Christmas season. But like, what's funny was no one questioned what she said. Like everyone was just kind of like, yeah. Like they all had that sense like, yes. Because there is this sort of sense that we all have uh, like that when something goes wrong, that's horrible. But when it goes wrong around Christmas time, that's plain evil, right? Because we have sort of this sense that, you know, Christmas is supposed to be like this magical time where everything works out for everyone. You know, at least that's what a lifetime of Hallmark holiday movies have taught me. <laughs> that everything's just supposed to kind of click into place. And I think just like this lady, it is, it is frustrating enough when things don't go your way. 
but when they don't go your way around Christmas time, it feels worse, doesn't it? Isn't it weird how that works? Like when things are good around Christmas, it like heightens Christmas. And when things are horrible and you're like, they can't be bad, it's Christmas. It's just like extra, it stings extra. Like someone getting, like breaking up with you at any other time of year. But if you're like, I got dumped and people are like, around Christmas? (laughs) We just, it's so much more evil, right? You know, I think I'm going to lose my job. Not this close to Christmas. It's like, well, it's April. It's not really that close to Christmas. But we just try and expand it, right? Because it has a way of heightening everything. And yet, even though we tend to want to believe this, that Christmas is this time where everything's supposed to go perfect for everyone, a lot of times our lived experience doesn't really reflect that. And I wonder what happens when that is not your story, right? When you are maybe in a season where, you know, things just have not been great. And you're coming up on Christmas, and there's always been this thought in the back of your mind that we're going to get it worked out and figured out before Christmas. We're going to get things together before Christmas. Like as long as we can make things right before Christmas, we're okay. And then you step onto the edge of Christmas, and you realize maybe it's not going to come together in time. Like maybe you're in a spot where your kids are excitedly asking for all these amazing gifts that you want to give them, but what they don't know is you were broke. You don't have the money this season to do all the things that you want to do for them, and you don't know how to break it to them, and that is breaking you. Maybe for you, you, are, you find yourself sort of booking those, those tickets for the holiday vacation that you're going to take with your family, and even as you're doing it, there's this little thought in the back of your mind that's just like, I mean, is our marriage even going to last long enough to go on this trip? that starts in 21 days because things have not been great. We gotta get them now, but part of me wonders like, do I even wanna go on this trip? Are we gonna even be capable of going on this trip? Maybe you're getting ready for like one of the 75 Christmas parties that you're obligated to attend during the season. And as you're getting dressed and scrambling through your attic to try and find something to bring for the 15th white elephant party that you are bringing stuff. Like, there's part of you that's just like, I don't even want to go to this because these people, they say they want me there, but nobody really there. They they don't really know me. None of these people actually care about me or get me or understand me or know what is going on deep within my life. And what do you do with that? Like when it, you hit Christmas, but you're not feeling very Christmassy, like what do you do with that? Because you don't want to put a damper on everybody else's Christmas, but it's hard to sustain excitement for what's going great for everyone else when nothing is going great for you. A lot of times it's like, I don't know what to do with that. Because everything that everybody else has during this season just seems to draw more attention to what you lack And you're not allowed to write that realness in a Christmas card. Just a picture of your family all sad. And then on the inside, it was like, suck for us this year. I mean, if you could reverse send us something, that would be great. Just cover the postage of this. I don't even know how we're going to be able to afford that. And what what happens when, like, maybe 
this sort of feeling that you're feeling isn't just, doesn't just feel like a season. It just sort of feels like your life now. Like this is just the way things are. Like you're never going to catch a break. Like there is so much that is just stacked against you. And you just feel like obviously this is not what life is supposed to be like. And how do we know what life is supposed to be like? Instagram, duh. I mean, like, that's how we know, right? We scroll through and we lust at other people's lives that we wish we had. And some people are nice enough to, to actually let you in on. In fact, their whole, you know, feed is just based on letting you in on how they got, you know, everything that you want. Their money and their body and their cars and their clothes and their trips and their romance. I mean, they're going to tell you this and that stuff for free. But for a limited time... For 13 low, low payments of $1,250 a month, you too can own your own Evil Oils franchise. And I think it's a great deal. But this thing is not just a now phenomenon. In fact, in, in every single culture, uh, someone or a group of someones gets held up as what it would look like to actually make it. Like, this is what it would look like and feel like if you actually had the life that you wanted. I think there's part of us when we see that, whether it's in person, whether it's in a movie, whether it's on social media, there's part of us that wonders what I might have to do in order to get a hold of that. And if I did, would it be worth it? And in many ways, I think this is the backdrop of the Christmas story. And the enviable lifestyle that everyone wanted the first Christmas wasn't Jesus's, it was Herod's. In fact, I want to just sort of approach the Christmas story today from the viewpoint of this character who almost seems like a bit part, but is looming largely over the entire story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, the beginning of his account of Jesus' birth begins this way. He says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of of King Herod. And this is like the first sentence, the establishing sentence, but it's usually the part most of us skip over, but there's a lot going on here. So let me just educate you. Herod is a half Jewish warrior and he's handpicked by Rome to essentially rule his region on their behalf. He's a puppet king. He does their bidding for them essentially. And to do this, they award him the title, the King of the Jews. This is what they call Herod. Naturally, no one consulted the Jews about this decision, okay? They just sort of did it like, you're going to be in charge of the Jews. And they're like, he's not even one of us. We don't like him. He's horrible. He's brutal. They didn't really care. Rome didn't. They did not approve. And Herod was a huge deal. There are still statues and monuments built to him to this day. There's a picture of one of them. Um, This is what Herod sort of looked like. Obviously, he had a sweet chin beard, um, And there's a lot of historians that argue that he was the one who really founded and popularized the chin beard. And uh, I would argue, is it popular? Uh, (laughs) It just looks like, what if we just all wore, you know, a a chin strap to a helmet at all times, and it's worse that he has a bowl cut. And so that's what's happening here. But he was a fierce warrior. And in fact, the thing that he was most known for outside of the chin beard was uh, he was... He was absolutely brutal. 
He used brute force, threats, and intimidation to get his way. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus, who's a secular historian who lived around uh, this time, the time of Jesus and the New Testament being written, writes this about one of Herod's battles. He says, troops poured in. A scene of wholesale massacre ensued. Herod's army was determined to leave none of their opponents alive. Masses were butchered in the streets, crowded together in houses with no mercy shown to infants or the old or the weak or female. And the reason that Herod did this was he said that he had to because it was God's will. It was God's will that he massacre thousands of people so that he could gain control, the control he was meant to have. Um, is this God's will? Right? Is this the way that God does things? Is this what God really wants? These are questions that a lot of Jews were asking themselves at this moment. But this guy wasn't just powerful, he was also rich. In fact, a lot of historians say that uh, he was probably the richest person who ever lived. Not just then, but ever in the history of ever. And he loved flaunting his wealth as proof of just how incredibly great he was. Like one time he decided that he wanted to build a third palace, you know, because it's nice to have like the first and the second, but the third is really where it starts to feel real, you know? That's the one where you can really go all out. And so he ruled in Jerusalem. He was from a place called Edom, and he was like, it'd be cool to have a third palace at the halfway point between these two places. And so he had it measured out perfectly, and they found that the center point between these two places, uh, they found it. And he was like, I, wanna, I want a palace, an extravagant palace built there on top of a mountain. And they're like, we'd love to do that. Uh, there are no mountains there. It is flat desert. In fact, it's kind of in a little bit of a valley. And he's just like, I don't care. Get it done. And so they did. They built him a mountain in the middle of a desert valley, and they built a palace on top of it. Uh, he called it Herodium, and uh, it, had, it was extravagant. You can see the, sort of the, the man-made mountain that exists right there. Who wanted to be on that crew? No one, right? What a horrible job to have to do. It had a racetrack, it had gardens, it had luxury apartments, the biggest pool ever built at that time, uh, which was nine feet deep with a gazebo in the middle that you can kind of see there uh, that was filled with snacks, but you could only get there by boat. And I just love that everything about this sounds like it was designed by an eight-year-old. And that just, like, could we just build a mountain and then put a castle and then like, oh, let's get a gazebo with snacks. And then maybe we get boat there and back. Oh, that'd be so fun. And ponies. We need ponies. That's literally what he had. That's crazy. He wanted to build a state-of-the-art city on the coast. This is another dream he had. But it was all swamp, right? The, the coastline was unbuildable. And so he was just like, that is an unacceptable answer. And so he had his people build these giant dams and drain the marsh. And then he brought in all this rock and concrete and he built a new coastline and then he built his city on top of it and he named it Caesarea because he was a little bit of a suck up. Caesarea, really? <laughs> After the Caesar? And the place was insane. Um, this is essentially what it would have looked like back in the day. You can see like the, the buildup around there is all man-made. 
and the city that he built coming off of it. There's this legend, though, that he, one, at one point, after it was built, it was completed, he was sailing by on his way back from Rome, and he saw the city that was like his dream city from the water after they'd completed it. And everyone's like, we don't even know how we did it. We innovated and invented things to even make this happen. And he saw it and he starts freaking out and screaming and he starts yelling, it's not beautiful enough. I want the whole thing covered in beautiful marble. And so they did it. They tore the entire city down and rebuilt it out of marble imported from other locations. It took them an additional 12 years. And when it was done, he was like, now that, that's a city. Everything he did was like this. It was huge, it was expensive, it was impressive, and he did a lot. He built palaces and gyms and temples and theaters and roads and baths and aqueducts and colonnades. He funded technologists and artists and innovators and athletes. And how did he afford all this stuff? Easy. Taxes. In fact, Rome notoriously overtaxed their people, especially at this time in history, and Herod was the worst of it. Uh, there are historical records that the people, especially the lower and middle classes, were being taxed up to 80 or 90% of everything they had. A little on the steep side. In fact, Josephus, the same ancient historian who lived through this time period, wrote that Herod's tyranny reduced the entire people to helpless poverty. So he's living well, his friends, his family, but nobody else's because he's taken from them to build himself up. And he had a lot of people living with him. In fact, uh, throughout his life, Herod had 11 wives and 43 kids. That's a lot, okay? That's, you're not gonna fit that in a minivan, just FYI. And most of these marriages and kids that he had uh, were really sort of a ploy to establish certain alliances and attain more power. Um, in fact, it was, it was said that he really only loved one of his wives. Um, but, you know, like most of the rest, he obviously had to kill her too. Um, and he murdered most of his wives and children. Uh, the, I did bring a picture that I found. This is a painting of the wife that he loved supposedly the most. Um, and she had more of like a, an inner beauty, um, according to this painting. <laughs> but he loved her deeply and, and then killed her. Um, and, you know, this is, he was just so paranoid and, and so uh, jealous of everything that he eliminated everybody around him. In fact, um, of his kids, he murdered uh, a lot of them himself, um, the rest were hired hits. One of the ones that's the most brutal to me, once he, um, he suspected one of his, his sons, who was, I believe, a teenager at the time, of being a part of this plot against him. And so he had him drown in the family pool in the back of their house during a party while all the guests watched. And the kid begged for his life. And uh, his father just gave the sign to kill him. And like when his body became still, <clears throat> the, the rumors that the guards were gonna pull it aside, but Herod waved them off and wanted it left. He wanted the body left in the pool 
floating there lifeless and dead until the party was over. It lasted three more days. And it was later discovered that the kid was innocent, that all the charges were falsified, but Herod didn't care because he'd made his point. He was absolutely ruthless. And there are so many examples of this. There's a, another story of him having a disagreement with a handful of Jewish leaders. They wouldn't sign off on something that he wanted to do. And so uh, his negotiating strategy was he rounded them all up, had them publicly executed, and then found new guys to replace them who would green light what he wanted to get done, which they did very quickly. He was famous for dressing in street clothes and sort of walking around the marketplace like Princess Jasmine style. You guys remember Aladdin, right? <laughs> Pretending like that he wasn't really the king and, and the guards would fall at a distance. And the only reason he did this was to eavesdrop on people and see if anybody was saying anything bad about him. And if they did, he would then tip off the guards and they would round that person up, torture them, and then kill them. This is the way things worked in this society. Like Herod controlled everything. He had all the power, and, and, and if you challenged or disagreed with him, he shamed, oppressed, or killed you. You did what he wanted you to do, or your life was over, and there was nothing you could do about it. This is the backdrop of the Christmas story. This is the guy that everybody wanted to be because he had it all. Now, knowing that, I just want you to listen to this first sentence again. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. It feels different, doesn't it? There's a heaviness to that. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed. I mean, he was generally, but specifically this time. And when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem, you think? Why is, why is, like, we get that he's upset, but why is everyone else upset as well? Because they know that king of the Jews is Herod's title. It's his role. And he's powerful. And he is rich. And he's ruthless. Nobody challenges him. And now there's a new king? Who, who is this person? It feels dangerous. How is this going to work? Are we about to go to war? Are we about to become collateral damage in a fight between these two forces, the old and the new? It says this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, that Herod called the teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem, they said, and then he called the wise men and he said, go search. And when you find the child, come and tell me so that I can worship too. Which kind of feels like he might not be telling the whole truth. And I'm just speculating, you know, loosely based on literally everything we know about him. In verse 9, it says, After this conversation, the wise men went their way, and when they had, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, it went ahead of them and stopped over a place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And that, that last sentence is the one that I, I the, recently, when I was reading through this story, I got hung up on. Like when they saw the star over the place where the child was, they were filled with joy. And the question I began to wonder was like, why? Why? 
Why were they filled with joy? Why that moment? Why in that particular place? And I would answer this by saying this. You, you probably noticed, just in life in general, that different environments have different energies, right? Everything has its own atmosphere. Like, I recently uh, got to go to a Lakers game at the Crypto Arena. And uh, because of you guys, um, some of you are like, I didn't even know I did that for you. Thank you. Uh, you know, but uh, you guys, for pastor appreciation, you got me tickets to go see a Lakers game. And when you go into the crypto arena, there is, uh, there's an environment that has an impact on you, right? There's so much buzz and excitement. There's people everywhere. There's the smell of like those big juicy hot dogs and like the onions that they're grilling on trash can lids. And you're like, I don't think that's sanitary, but I want one. And everyone's excited and there's like celebrities and there's just like, you just like, you can't help but just be like a little bit amped up. And then there are places like the public library like you go to the library, different energy, a little bit different than the crypto arena, right? It's quiet in there. It's still like if you laugh too loud, somebody's like, shh, and you're like, that shush was five times louder than my laugh. <laughs> it smells of musty books in there, like there was water damage, and people just mopped it up with an open-faced book. People are reading, it's quiet, like it, people are studying or trying to pretend like they're studying or trying to meet a girl who they think is studying there. It has a different energy. And when you step into a space, it has an impact on you. And all this makes me wonder this. I wonder what Herod's palace felt like. I think it was probably the kind of place where everyone looked nice you know, but their smiles were forced because they never knew who to trust. And everybody sort of holds each other at an arm's distance. I think it was the type of place where you wonder every time someone tells you something there, if you're getting the whole story or just a version so they can get you to do what they want you to do. I think it was the kind of place where like every gift that you're given comes with strings attached where the table is always full of all this lavish food and wine, but Weirdly, hardly anyone eats because everyone's stomach is so tied up in knots, anxious that they're going to say or do something that is going to get them mocked or ejected or maybe even executed. And some of you are thinking, like, that sounds like where I grew up, um, which is not great. And what I think is interesting about this story is that the wise men are from a completely different culture. They don't speak the language or know all the customs but they can read the atmosphere. They have this sense that when they're there that something is off, something is not right. And whatever that something is, is somehow connected to this king of the Jews. And then they leave there. And they follow this star, which leads them from the palace to this tiny peasant house. And there is a poor family huddled there with their baby and like the one animal they can afford. The place is small, it smells, there's no red carpet, there's no table to even sit at, there's no chefs to make meals. These people are simple, but they're smiling. Because they actually wanna be there in this moment with each other. And you could feel that. 
the atmosphere was thick with it. So thick, in fact, that like simply seeing this scene at a distance bathed in starlight was enough to fill bystanders with joy. Now, I'm, I'm sort of imaginatively describing these ancient scenes and settings, but I wonder if as I do, like something about each of them feels familiar to you. Almost like you've been to these homes and you sat at some of these tables and when you did, you felt something. And the reason for that is, is like our bodies have this sort of strange way of knowing things before our brains can piece it all together. You ever go into some place and just something is off and you can feel it and people are like, what's the matter? And you're like, I don't know yet, but I know, right? You know in your gut, but not in your head. Something that your body is trying to warn you is not right. It's like our, our spidey senses have this way of telling us when a place is safe and when it's not. And I think the wise men were filled with joy because when Christ is at the center of something, you can feel it. It creates a certain atmosphere and despite the circumstances that surround it, that space where Jesus is truly the center emanates hope and joy. And I'm not talking about like Christ being the center in sort of like a lip service way where the people are like, oh, we're Christians in this house. They've got the embroidered thing that says, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord and you're like, oh, it must be true. It's embroidered on the wall. But nothing about their lives actually demonstrates that they live their lives according to the words and way of Jesus. But when Jesus is truly the center of something, it changes the environment. And these wise men in this story, they're foreigners. Like, they don't know prophecies. They don't know all of the theology. They don't know the things that they're supposed to believe. But they know how this place feels. And they can see on the edge of this scene with Mary and Joseph and this baby Jesus that this feeling is connected to this baby, that this king of the Jews is different. And they want in. And so they stay a while. They give Jesus gifts. And it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, that when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. And so he sent the soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Brutal. There are, all, there are actually multiple paintings of this. Uh, none of them are pleasant. Uh, this is one that is the most disgusting to me. Um, maybe you can notice that there are just the bodies of toddlers sort of sprinkled on the ground. I don't know if you see the guy in the foreground who is holding something over his head. He is spiking a baby into the ground. And the reason that Herod required this to be done because he needs to be in control. He can't let anyone else infringe on that his divine right. 
I mean, it's mind-blowing to think about. And at the same time, after everything you've learned about this guy, is it really all that surprising that this happened? Because anyone who stands between Herod and his sense of control has to go. Because this is how he lived his life. Like, he is going to use his power to seize peace for himself, even if doing so sabotages peace for everyone else. And yet just before this plot is carried out, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says that after the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I, return, I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. And that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And this is what I want you to think about. The contrast between how these two groups of people rang in their first Christmas. Because on one side, you have Herod locked in his, one of his three lavish palaces, physically as comfortable as he could be, but internally, emotionally, in chaos. He's likely drunk, he's paranoid, he's angry, he's surrounded by people he paid to be there. He's feeling his life slip through his fingers. He only has a couple years left at this point. And he is doing that deep kind of soul searching that you do when you realize that it may be too late to sort of turn your life around. And he's wondering if maybe it would have been better to have been someone that was really loved instead of someone that was feared because everybody feared him, but no one really loved him. And then you, you have a poor couple huddled together in a shack on the edge of town with a baby eating the same stale bread that they had the day before but overflowing with joy because even though they have so little, to them it kind of feels like they have it all. And they're at peace. They're at peace with God, with themselves, and even with their circumstances, as crazy as they are. And the reality of it is, we all have a choice between these same two Christmases every single year. Because you get to decide who you're going to be and the way you're going to live and what you're going to prioritize. You do not get to decide if things are going to go your way or not. But you do get to decide how to respond to them when they don't. And I gotta tell you that the more you try and control the uncontrollable, the more chaos you create and the less joy you experience. Because the more you grasp for power, the more you miss out on joy. This is the way in which life works. But not only will you miss out on joy, so will those around you. Because everything you do is creating an atmosphere. And some of our houses feel more like Herod's than they should. And I know you're thinking like, well, I'm not really like him. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to be king of the, the universe or whatever. And that's true. But I would argue that you probably are trying to be king of your context. Like, maybe your version is like, you know, you're an achiever. You like, you get things done but you feel all this pressure to create all these priceless holiday memories for everybody else. And so you brainstorm and you make lists and you make a plan and then three contingency plans on top of that. 
because it's got to be perfect. And so you shop and you cook and you clean and you arrange and you invite, but your expectations feel overwhelming and your anxious scrambling is overbearing to everyone else. No one feels like they can meet your standards, including you, which is why you just decide to do everything yourself. And so you're scurrying about and you're barking orders and you're scowling at everyone who doesn't really appreciate how hard you work because it's never enough and you need it to be and they do too because you're the one that's holding this family together, which is exhausting. And if they just do what you told them to, their lives would be so much better because you get it and they don't, but they won't do what you tell them to. And so you keep pushing and they keep pulling away. But it's like the more you try and use your power to seize peace for yourself, the more they act like you are sabotaging it for everyone else. I think in our pursuit of control to make ourselves feel okay, we invite in characteristics of Herod. Herod is an extreme example, but don't let the extremity of his control issues keep you from seeing the subtle ways yours are sabotaging the season that we are standing on the threshold of. And here's my question to you. What if this Christmas... Instead of trying to control everything, you decided to just do what God is asking of you right now and leave all the outcomes to him. For some of you, you're like, Christmas season is the beginning of scramble season. It's the beginning of forced plan season. It's the beginning of like, how am I going to get everyone in line season? It's the, the beginning of like, how do I make everything perfect and make everything happen? And how do I get these people to do? And how can I make sure that I stay and this happens? And, and it is just overwhelming to you and those around you. And I wonder if you just sort of pushed back from that and were just like, I'm not going to do the Herod thing this year. When things don't go my way, Instead of overreacting and trying to seize control, I'm going to step back and take a deep breath and ask God, what is it that you actually want me to do right now? And it's probably gonna have something to do with you addressing something in you, not you controlling what is happening out here with them. I wonder if you doing this may be the beginning of trading the anxiety of the season for true joy. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this. He said, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for the greatest joy. What a, an annoying sentence. Right? There, there's sometimes, like, I read things in Scripture and they just make me mad. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> not because they're, they're not true, but because they are true. And I would say if this, this would be so offensive if it wasn't written by James. James has the right to, because if you know anything about his life, he lived through a lot of trials of every kind. Where does he get this idea that when troubles of any kind come your way that it is an opportunity for great joy. Why is he convinced that this is true? And why is it ratified by the people who are collecting 
writings they believe are divinely inspired and putting it together in scripture. Why is he convinced that this is the way the world works? Because he had watched it in motion by looking at the lives of his parents, looking at the life of his brother Jesus, who went through trouble and trial one after the next, and yet somehow found joy in the midst of it. Somehow lived the opposite of Herod all through it and experienced everything he wanted but couldn't gain access to. Because I think what James understands is that it's not what you go through. It's how you go through it and who you go through it with. I think the saddest thing about the first Christmas that Herod experiences is that he's surrounded by all of these people who have to be there, but he is completely alone. He is completely in control and completely miserable. And yet you have Mary and Joseph and their baby that have next to nothing, but they have each other. They have a God who loves them. They have an idea of the next step they're gonna take forward in their life. They have this baby that they believe is a miracle and there's no way you're gonna talk them out of it. And they have this sense that even though everything in the world is falling apart around them, that somehow there's still reason to smile. And I just wonder, like, when people step into your home this season, what King of Jews atmosphere are they going to experience? Like, does your home feel more like Jesus or Herod? I think this is a good question to ask ourselves. I don't think the wise men were won over by the incredible theology of Mary and Joseph, with whom they probably couldn't have a conversation without the use of an interpreter. I think what blew them away was the atmosphere on the edge of that small peasant house and how drastically different it felt from the palace they just came from. And I wonder, what does your house feel like? Does it emanate anxiety or joy? Is it more controlling or is it more caring? What is it that people sense in the air when they step on the threshold of your home? When they sit in the passenger seat of your car? when they stand toe to toe with you in the workplace, when they come and pull a chair up next to your desk, what is it that people feel? Because here's what I really do believe. When Jesus is at the center of something, it changes everything. It begins to ripple out and change the way things feel. And there's something about that that pulls people in and opens them up to truth and love, to the joy that everyone is so desperate for but few seem to find. And on this first message in our Christmas series, 
my hope, my heart for you is that you would place Christ at the center of this season, that you would live every day of this month submitted to the words and way of Jesus, that it wouldn't just be that you go to church sometimes or that you like the Christmas story or that you check the box Christian when you fill out a form somewhere, but you center your life around everything that truly matters because that's what changes the atmosphere around us. And when people step into the atmosphere that surrounds you, what they ought to experience from you is joy. Would you bow your heads across this room? I wanna just pray this into your life today. God, we are so incredibly grateful for the way in which you love us. God, for your word, for this timeless story that still speaks volumes to us today. God, we are in so many different places in our lives. We're all in various different seasons. Some of us, we've been looking forward to this Christmas. Some of us, we're dreading it a little bit because we don't have things figured out. We don't have things worked out. The year did not go the way we wanted it to. And we're wrestling with whether or not to seize control or let the fact that we don't have control of the things we want control of to be the defining factor of this season. Some of us are about to go into scramble mode to try and force our will in our way. And yet, God, I pray that you would focus us on just what you were saying to us during this season, that you would simplify our to-do list, that you would focus us on you, and that as you become the center of everything we say and everything we think and everything we do, that it would transform not just the space in our heart, but the space surrounding our home. Do this in the way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.